Merry Christmas, everyone. I'm glad to see everyone here. I'm glad to see so many folks who I don't know yet, but I hope I'll know before the night's out. And old friends as well. Welcome back, everyone. If you're wondering, well, this is strange service. It doesn't even seem like they know what they're doing. You're right. And and that's all part of the plan, because Paul even gives us this at one point in his letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, he says, what is the outcome then? Meaning, what is the outcome supposed to be of the gathering itself? Why do we even have this pattern as Christians of coming into the same room once a week. Paul gives us that. He says, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. That's the whole point. The point is not that we sit around and watch somebody else. The whole point is that we are using what God has given us to invest in the lives of other people. And we do that here regularly. We try to do that every Sunday. But what better day of the year to do it than the day that we celebrate the reason we're Christians, which is the birth of our Lord Jesus. So what you're seeing in front of you is the entire congregation, or at least as many of us as we could fit up here, bringing gifts of one kind or another as God has given them to us and using them to glorify his name and to edify the saints. So if it doesn't look polished, that's the whole point. So thank you for being a part of this, whatever your role is this evening. We're glad to have you. Todd was helpful to read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, and I'm going to teach just briefly out of what he read tonight. But I want to open with a short story that just sets up nicely what we need to understand out of this chapter. There's a Christmas once when a mom was deciding that she was no longer going to remind her children repeatedly to send thank you notes after they received gifts at Christmas. And so one year she didn't remind them, and sure enough, they didn't send them. And the grandmother that year had given sizable checks to each of the children, and she never received the thank you she was expecting. The next year, things were different. The grandmother told a friend after that next Christmas that both the grandchildren made a point to come to her at her house and thank her personally for the checks. And the friend said, well, that's really wonderful. What did you do differently this year that caused the change in behavior? And the grandmother said, oh, it was so easy. I just didn't sign the checks. Because sometimes the best way to say thank you is to do it in person. Wouldn't you agree? (laughs) Matthew teaches us in chapter 2 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And shortly thereafter, he received a visit in person from men who had come to thank him, in a sense, to worship him. Matthew calls them magi in the verses we read tonight. The magi, they come from the east, we're told, because they had seen a star that told them that this was the time of the arrival of the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, the one that would be born king of the Jews and would save men from sin. And so as a result of that star, we're told they travel from their home in the east to the west, to Jerusalem, looking for this promised Messiah. That detail is a wonderful detail. It's a well-known detail. In fact, if you look on your program, you'll see on the very cover a scene depicting that very moment of wise men, of magi coming from the east. Most of our nativity scenes have them represented in that scene. In fact, ours in the back has it. And shame on us because that's actually not accurate. There are a number of things about the story as it relates to the magi that are particularly interesting. And there are also some unfortunate misconceptions about who they were, how they arrived and what they did. Let's set the record straight tonight. Let's use Christmas Eve as an opportunity to really understand what Scripture has to say about not just these men, but about their reason for travel, for the reason that night held so much importance to them. Who are these Magi? Why did they come to Jerusalem? 
The text of Scripture tells us that they came to Mary and to the child in a house. Did you notice that? In the text we read tonight, it said in a house. Yet we know from Luke's gospel that he was born in a stable, in a manger. This means that when they arrived, they probably came as many as two years after the birth of Christ. And that makes sense. They had to travel from a long distance from the appearance of the star all the way to the time they could be there would have taken some amount of time to travel. Then we're told also that they went and saw Herod the king first and asked Herod, where is this king of the Jews? Well, that was news to Herod. He didn't know that. He was a little surprised to hear that. And then from there, it took them time to find Mary and Joseph. So it was at least two years or so from the moment of the birth till they arrived. Furthermore, do you notice you're never told how many? But there's always three, isn't there? There's always three. Why is there three? Not because the Bible says there's three. People have assumed there was three because there were three kinds of gifts. And for no reason other than speculation, we assume that there's one gift per person. Well, there's no reason to make that assumption. It could have been a group of magi for each gift. Or it could have been a whole group of people, some with one, some with another gift. Maybe some had two or three of the same gift. In fact, it probably makes more sense for us to assume a large group of men, not just three. And I'll tell you why. Well, let's look at the word first. The word magi in Scripture, in Greek, it literally means a magician or a sorcerer. Or sometimes you could say a wise man. But wisdom in the sense of the knowledge of sorcery or the knowledge of magic. They were men who could also be called astrologers. Astrologer was another term for a magician or a sorcerer. We know they lived in the East. Now, East in this context, in fact, East in the biblical context, is always a reference to Mesopotamia, to the place of ancient Babylon, or today we would call it Iraq. That's where they lived when they saw the star. The star appeared to them in that place. But questions come to mind. If you're even slightly interested in this story, you're going to ask the same questions I did. You're going to say, well, why did they even know to look for that sign? You see a star appear. What does that mean to you? Nothing, really. It's just a star. But for them, it meant travel to Jerusalem. How did they figure that out? And why did they care about this Messiah in the first place? Why would a bunch of magicians or astrologers in Babylon have any concern at all about a Jewish king? Well, let's consider the details of the story to get our answer. First, verse 9 is where I want you to focus. Verse 9, the star, it says, was in the east, but then it moves westward with these guys as they follow it. And eventually it said to come to rest over the house of Mary and Joseph, where the child is now living. Folks, that's no ordinary star. Stars don't do that. No normal star does that. In fact, no natural object in the sky does that. If you tried to explain that even in other ways, like a comet or so on, none of those natural explanations fit the data that were given in Scripture. So either the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about or we're not looking at a natural object. Guess which one I choose. It's not a natural object. The only reasonable explanation for something that does this in the way the Bible says it happened would have to be a manifestation of God made specifically for this purpose. And my guess is it's the Shekinah glory of God. You know the Old Testament, you know that in the time of Israel wandering in the desert after the Red Sea crossing, there was a manifestation of God that led them through the desert, that they followed, a bright fire that they knew was the glory of God made manifest. I believe a similar kind of manifestation appeared in the sky and led these men to the place they were supposed to go in the West, in Jerusalem. That explains how the Magi found Christ, but it doesn't explain how they knew to follow it 
or why they had any interest in the Messiah to begin with. Well, the Bible gives us that explanation as well. First, remember, these men are Magi, astrologers employed in Babylon. And in Babylon, they served the Babylonian king in the Babylonian court of ancient times. And they were part of a long history of men who did this. Magi or astrologers were part of the Babylonian history for literally centuries before this moment. They can be traced back in the Bible as far as the time of Ezra or even before that in the time of Daniel in the book of Daniel. Daniel was a young Jewish nobleman. He was taken captive by Babylon in 600-605 B.C. The king that captured him is a king called Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel is given the ability by God to interpret dreams, to give their meaning. Now, the king at one point has a dream that's so disturbing, he asks for someone in his court of astrologers to interpret it for him. None of the astrologers can do it. And so the king says, I'm going to kill you all because you're worthless. Then Daniel steps forward and Daniel interprets the dream correctly. And as a result, he is made the one in charge of all of the astrologers of Babylon. Believe it or not, Daniel was a magi. Daniel was one of these magi from centuries earlier. And he led the Magi of Babylon for a time. Daniel wrote down what he experienced and he wrote down his prophecy interpretations. That's why we have them in the book of Daniel today. He wrote that book in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of Babylon. That book would have been maintained in Babylon as part of the history of those Magi, of those astrologers. They would have had access to the knowledge that Daniel gave them. And one of the things Daniel wrote in his book, in chapter 9, was the exact year that Jesus would be born. The exact year of Jesus' birth is recorded in the book of Daniel hundreds of years before Jesus was actually born. More proof that our books in front of us are written by the hand of God. So astrologers, number one, had knowledge to look for some event in the year of Jesus' birth because one of their own had told them to look for that. And why would the astrologers pay any attention to Daniel's words? Because Daniel had been made their leader for a time, and that would have carried great respect among those in that field. All right, so now we know why the astrologers would have been looking for that sign, because of the generations and generations of handed-down knowledge that would have told them to expect this, to anticipate this. But how did they know that star was the sign? Daniel didn't say anything about a star. Daniel never told them it would be a star that would lead them. He just told them when to expect something. Well, Daniel was not the first biblical character to serve in the court of astrologers in Babylon. Another prophet, another man written in the Bible, a decidedly less honorable man, also served in the court of Babylon. And he did so thousands of years before even Daniel did it. This is a man named Balaam. Balaam lived in Mesopotamia. Or, as we said, Babylon. And he's featured in an even earlier series of events related to the nation of Israel. When their nation was wandering in the desert after the Red Sea crossing, there was a time in which they wandered into a land called Moab. And the king of Moab, a man named Balak, was so worried that these Israelites wandering in were going to take over his land that he went to Babylon and called for one of the astrologers and said, come to my land and I want you to curse these people with your magic powers so that they will not take over my land. That astrologer that was called from Babylon was a man named Balaam. 
When Balaam came, God said, you will not speak curses against my people. You will only speak blessing. Do you know one of the things that God put in the mouth of Balaam? One of the things he had Balaam speak to the nation of Israel? Listen to this. It's in Numbers 24:16. It says this. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. And then this is what he says, quote, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. The prophecy of Balaam, a magi in the court in Babylon, says that a star will mark the coming forth of the scepter or the Messiah of Israel. That scepter will rise from Israel. And the Babylonian magi were told by an earlier one of their own to look for a star in Israel when the day of the Messiah comes. And they were told by Daniel what year to look for that star. And all they had to do was read their own material to understand the date and the manner in which God would tell them it was time to go west. Isn't it amazing the way God works to reveal himself to us? And to do it over centuries and to do it in really the most unlikely of circumstances. He could influence men like Balaam and Daniel and those magi from across history and use even ungodly nations like Babylon to communicate his purposes and to prepare the world for something he wanted to do. But at the center of all of this work of God is the word of God. The word of God brought all of this into being. The Magi knew when to find the Messiah. They knew what to look for. Why? Because it had been recorded through God's word, through what Balaam spoke and was recorded in Numbers and what Daniel gave and was recorded in his book. And they made a decision to believe that word. And because they believed the word of God, they were able to stand in the very presence of the creator himself having taken on human form and the child of Christ. And because they believed and because they followed, they were able to worship. That's the opportunity we have tonight. We don't have the Christ child in front of us. Thank the Lord he has come to fruition as a man who died on a cross and saved us from our sins and has gone to the right hand of the Father and will return one day as he's promised. But while we wait for that, we can still know exactly the same truth that those men in the day of his birth, we're able to know. And we'll know it exactly the same way they were able to know it. We don't have to go outside and look at a star in the sky. The time for that sign has come and gone. What we can do instead is we can read from the Word of God. And when we read from the Word of God as they did, we will hear things like this, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And if we were to go a little further in the Bible and read in Romans, we'd read this, Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than because we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from God's wrath? And then finally, 
Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. These instructions are given to us in God's word by God himself because he holds open an opportunity for all of us to enter into his presence upon our death, provided we have accepted in the word of God the very thing that those magi accepted some 2,000 years ago. We accept that the words are true because they came from God. We accept that he made them possible for us because there is no other way. Had there been a better way, he would have gone that better way, but this is the only way. And that because we want to worship him, we seek to follow him according to what he has said. And tonight, what better night to remind us that we follow a good, wise, loving, and merciful God who has made one way available so that all who would care to know him truly can do so through his son, Christ. He cannot be known by astrology. He cannot be known by works. He cannot be known by tradition or ritual. He cannot be known because your parents were Christian and so you're a Christian. It doesn't work that way. You know him because you choose to believe the word of God and to accept him as Savior. What better night to do that? Let's worship him together and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we could come together tonight to study what we need to understand about who you are through your son. Thank you for the memory of his birth every year. The joy that it is for us to celebrate with family and to share gifts and to enjoy you in this service. But Father, let it not end tonight. I pray that those who hear this word and have yet to know you would embrace you while this opportunity is given to them. Give them, Father, the faith that saves. Call them your children and adopt them. Bring them into the family as you have done to us. We praise you and thank you for the chance to speak truth in a world that needs to hear it. I praise your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.